6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Birth of a Nation. I'm, I'm always reminded when I go through Egypt, um, we left Cairo and went up, when you get out of, out of the city, you, dri you drive along these roads, and next to the road there seems to be like a, a ravine, a culvert, a cement culvert uh, with water in it, and these, the very extreme poverty in the villages. And when you look more closely, you realize that's not concrete, it's trash. And the water isn't, is gray, blue-gray, it's polluted water. And you begin to realize that this, as you think about it, this country wasn't always a third world country. This country ruled the world at one time. But the scripture tells us we become like the gods we worship. And the top of the heap of their worship thing is the scarab, the dung beetle. And they're living on that kind of environment. And also, it's interesting that uh, the obsession of the uh, Egyptian heritage in terms of death the mummies and the, the whole, the whole uh, background is uh, uh, we become like the Gazi worship. So here's a country that w ruled the world at one time and today has become like the Gazi worship. And we need to remember that. Is the world harsh, materialistic, unforgiving? If you, if you worship the world, you'll become harsh, materialistic, unforgiving. You'll become like the God you worship. Scripture says that, Psalm 135, verse 18, and so forth. That's why it's important to worship Christ, because you'll become like the one you worship. But obviously, the Egyptian Passover was the event they still celebrate to this day, of course. It's a symbol of life. In fact, God instructs in the second verse of Exodus 12, this month shall be the beginning of months. That's why the Hebrews have two calendars. The civil calendar, which is Rosh Hashanah, starts in the fall, typically our September or October time period. But the, the religious calendar starts with the month of Nisan in the spring, because that's the month of the, uh, the Passover. And when God in, in institutes the Passover, he tells Moses, make this month the beginning of month. So they have two months, a civil year starting in September, or our September, roughly at that time, uh, first of Tishri, and then the, the religious calendar, uh, Nisan. And obviously, Passover symbolized not only life, but also liberty, because they were delivered from bondage. That's the key theme there. It's interesting that they were delivered by blood put on the doorposts. And if you go to your door and put blood on the top and the lintel, you'll end up doing a cross, of course, which is subtle, but worth mentioning. But it's interesting, it was not a basis of nationality. If you were an Egyptian and happened to be in a Jewish home that night, you were spared. If you were Jewish and didn't put blood on the doorposts, 
the death angel would take the firstborn of your house. It was basis of the blood, not their nationality. Important issue. And of course, it also, Passover also speaks of fellowship because it's memorialized as a feast to this very day. They say every, in the Jewish home, that the peak of their year in many respects is the Passover celebration. And actually, uh, in the month of Nisan, there's actually three feasts. The Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. But they're usually collectively spoken of as Passover. It's also prophetic. It's very important. We're going to talk a lot about this as we go forward. That each of the feasts of Moses are not only commemorative of some historical I issue, and they each are, but it's also prophetic. And Jesus Christ is called our Passover Lamb. In fact, when John the Baptist first introduces Jesus publicly, twice, he introduces him, very strange title. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, it's familiar to us, to our ears, let's not uh, uh, lose the fact that that's a strange title. But it's, of course, a Passover illusion, because that, the Lamb of God, he was, he was given as an offering for our sin. And in John 1, of course, twice. Egypt now is also viewed as a type of the world, a symbol of material wealth and power. We probably have a hard time imagining the dominance of Egypt in that era. It was, of course, ruled by a despotic prince. Pharaoh was a despot. Again, though, it's another way that is idiomatic, if you will, of the world. It's a type or a model or a, a metaphor of the world. And Pharaoh, of course, becomes, in a sense, a type of Satan, the adversary of God's people. Egypt also represented fleshly wisdom and false religion. They worshipped all these uh, various gods, of course, rather than the living God. We're going to talk more about the wisdom of the Egyptians uh, uh, later on. But Egypt was organized on a basis of force, ambition, and pleasure. The world as we know it is also organized under Satan and uh, on the basis of force, ambition, and pleasure. Egypt persecuted the people of God, and so does the world. You need to recognize that the world at large is anti-Bible. The whole tension in the Middle East is, a God, is the world's challenge to the Abrahamic Covenant. And recognize, too, that Jesus promised you, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, that you would have persecution. Living in America, we've been immune to most of that. But uh, we need to recognize that we, don't, we shouldn't have the arrogance, as Christians in America, to presume that we're going to be exempt from what most of the body of Christ in most of the world for most of the last 1900 years have had to endure. It's called persecution. And so more of that's coming. But Egypt was overthrown by divine judgment, and this world will also be, and that's what's profiled in the book of Revelation, when the one who purchased the world, namely the Lamb of God, takes title to that which he purchased. And of course, we'll get to that when the time comes. They crossed the Red Sea. Israel was cornered against the, the sea. But then the Shekinah, this fiery pillar, cloud by day and fire by night, blocked the Egyptian army as the sea parted to allow Israel to cross. Very much dramatized in the famous movie, but familiar to all of us, I'm sure. But interestingly, as the Egyptians who attempted to follow them, they were drowned. I'm always amused 
by these people that have these theories that, well, the, the, the Red Sea was really uh, the Reed Sea, and actually it was only about three foot deep. I always think that's interesting, and that, that's the biggest miracle in the Bible, then, is the entire Egyptian army drowned in three feet of water, you know. And, and of course, that's utter nonsense. It's interesting, you should be aware of the fact that a submerged land bridge has been discovered across the Strait of Tehran, supporting an Arabian site of Mount Sinai. The Sinai Peninsula is the location of a traditional site at St. Catherine's there, what they call Mount Sinai in the back of your Bible, you probably have a map. I think most scholars today recognize that that's an error. First of all, in over a century of searching, they found absolutely no trace of any indication there have been a million people camped there in the past. You know, it's an arid desert with uh, none of the features that uh, the Bible describes. In contrast to that, Paul tells us in Galatians that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And if you look in Arabia, there is Mount Jabal al-Laws, which when you see it is astonishing because the top part of it is, is burnt from the outside in. It's, it's been made molten by external heat, the whole top of the mountain. And uh, it's very conspicuous. And as you investigate there, they find all... Uh, anyway, to make a long story short, there's a lot of evidence accumulating that that is the real Mount Sinai. And that, that would fit the biblical record. But it's also interesting, then, to take a look at where this, the, the land here. Now, if you look at a map, up near the Nile uh, up there, you have the land of Goshen, which was the rich land. But if you come down the western edge of the, what's called the Sinai Peninsula, and you cross at the Strait of Tehran, there is a land bridge just under the waters. Now it's not really shallow now, but it was at one time. Anyway, and Jabal al-Laws, you find the springs of Mara, you find a, a, a very conspicuous rock cleft where there's evidence of erosion. You find uh, altars, what appears to have been the altar, the main altar, and other things. So it, there's a, there are a lot of books out now and so forth and encourage you to recognize that, that, that uh, the evidence seems to be supporting the Arabian location of Mount Sinai. But this whole event of the Red Sea parting and the, and the Exodus and so forth turns out throughout the Bible to be almost a measurement standard of other things. In uh, Micah 7, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, uh, I will show him marvelous things. In other words, Again and again you find the Lord making reference to the coming out of the land of Egypt as a milestone against which other things are compared. A milestone of judgment because of the plagues that were given. A milestone of grace because the blood covering took care of that. A milestone of might because the Red Sea, that, you know, that was uh, God showing off, if I can, if I can use a, what might be a little, somewhat irreverent phrase. God was really setting this up to flexes muscles, if you will, because it becomes obviously an uh, event that the nations take note of. Later on, 40 years from now, when you get to Jericho, certain people there would tremble because of the advent of this. this they've heard the stories. They know what happened. It's also a measurement standard of guidance because the Shekinah, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And also a provision because manna and water and so forth are provided over a million people in the desert by the God that called them there in, in miraculous ways. And it's also a measurement standard of faithfulness of the Abrahamic covenant. It's also a measurement standard of condescension, where God himself deigns to dwell with his people. And that's what the tabernacle will be all about. Now, our exit in Christ is parallel to this. Our emancipation from bondage, it's spiritual, not physical, so far. 
We're delivered also by the shedding of blood, just as they were. His blood, not an animal. The animals are just anticipatory emblems that we'll see in the offerings and so forth. Our exodus is universal, not national. Because the Scripture says, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. So the law is also a big part of Exodus. The law is given in chapters 19 through 20. The terms, God's terms, the parties, and the altar, the remedy for having broken the law, are all included as part of the package. We also have the judgments, social judgments, others, rites and uh, uh, practices and so forth. And then the ordinance, that is the religious ordinances, the Sabbaths and the feasts are all spelled out. Ten Commandments you're pretty familiar with, I, I trust. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship any graven image. These are all familiar to us, I think. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This is widely misunderstood. I believe this has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you take the name of the king, you have a responsibility to represent him accurately. And that's what it's really talking about. But many people just assume that's talking about swearing or something. No, it goes far beyond that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This does not ordain the Sabbath day. It was ordained in Eden on the seventh day when God rested from his creation. But he's calling in his Ten Commandments for these people, his chosen people, to remember that day, to keep it holy. The Sabbath is indeed the seventh day, not the first day. I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, so go down that path. But at the same time, we do need to understand that the Sabbath was a day that God did set aside. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long. This is the one command that has a promise attached to it. Thou shalt not murder. When you start talking about murder, you start talking about abortion, just remember when John the Baptist began his ministry. When he was nine inches long, weighed a pound and a half, and he was still in the womb, he jumped for joy and was spirit-filled. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Interesting command that ordains private ownership. Private ownership is protected in the, in the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough. You can't steal. You know, stealing implies someone owns something. Right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. Why was the law given? This may surprise you. When we get to Romans 7, you're going to end for some real shocks. Because why was the law given? The law was given to expose our sin nature. We can't keep it if we tried. It's there to expose our nature. It may shock you that one of the reasons, and we'll cover this when we get there, but is the law was given to incite the sin nature to sin more. That's a shock. See, the sin nature has not, itself has not been uh, reformed. I'm hoping you don't, you're uncomfortable with some of this because then you go and you'll, you'll study Romans 7 to see what I'm talking about here. It's to drive us to despair of self-ethic. You, you cannot repair your sin nature. Adam and Eve tried by covering themselves with coats of skin. No, by the shedding of blood. God was teaching them by the shedding of blood they'd be covered. The law is given there to get us to understand we can't cut it on our own. God's holiness is higher than we can reach to. And so he's trying to drive us to dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And that's what Romans 8, the following chapter in Romans, is all about. The gospel supersedes the law. The commandments were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And that great discovery is really the good news. That's astonishing, but it really is. 
For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, according to Romans 10. The ordinances are given to present shadows that are now superseded by Jesus Christ himself. Shadows of anticipatory glimpses. And we are in a new dispensation. The contrast in, is outward command and exodus and inward power of the Holy Spirit. An objective code versus subjective change. A condemning ethic versus a transforming dynamic. And obviously in each case this is the, the, the we walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And that's what the whole New Testament is all about. Romans 8 nails this. For what the law could not do, that in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So keep this in mind as we deal with God's law on the one hand, but recognize that God has given us something better than the law. Well, let's get to the tabernacle. The last part of the book of Exodus deals with this very strange construction. More is said about the tabernacle than any other single thing in the Scripture. So in addition, you, as I say, these two tablets of stone, Moses received a set of engineering specifications for this portable sanctuary. And there's more, more space to this description than any other single subject in the Bible. It has a structure. It has furniture within that structure. There's a priesthood that deals with it. And that's all in the book of Exodus. In the book of Leviticus, we'll have a detailed listing of offerings and procedures to exercise these things. And there's material symbolism here. Things that brass is the metal that could sustain fire. So it speaks of judgment. Gold, of course, speaks of deity. And silver speaks of blood. All through the scripture. Jesus betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, Judas says, I betrayed innocent blood when he throws them back on the temple floor. It was a silver coin, by the way, that was the redemption coin in the temple. We're going to see that the whole, the, the tabernacle rests on sockets of silver. It rests on the blood, is the, is the imagery here. Now, the tabernacle, first thing you saw if you approached it was a linen fence. All you could see is a white fence, higher than eye level. It's about 75 feet wide, about 150 feet long. By the way, that makes its perimeter the same as the length of the ark, by the way. Not the, that you can make something of that if you like. And of course, it, uh, we're entering eastward. And the first thing you encounter is the brazen altar. First step you need is to take care of this, the altar of sacrifice. And then you have the laver for the washing. And then you have the tabernacle proper, this very strange portable building. As we look at it, it had two rooms. The holy place was... Uh, like two cubes in length. Then you had an inner sanctum, so to speak, the Holy of Holies. The holy place and the Holy of Holies. As you entered the door, on the left side was the seven-branch candlestick, the menorah. And uh, it was the only the source of light in the place. Across from it, on the right side, was the table of showbread. Twelve loaves, one loaf for each tree of the twelve tribes, changed every Shabbat. In this room, but associated with the Holy of Holies, was the golden altar. It's always associated with the Holy of Holies, but it's outside the veil because it had to be tended to day and night. And you could never go in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies only once, one day a year, after great ceremonial preparation. So it was the Holy of Holies. 
And of course, uh, in the Holy of Holies, we have the Ark of the Covenant, inside of which were the tables of stone and some other things. Then on top of that, we have this separate entity called the mercy seat. Most of us fall into the trap of assuming that the mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. We use the word the Ark of the Covenant connotatively refer to both of them. Actually, it's very instructive to keep in mind that the mercy seat is a separate item. The Ark of the Covenant was wood covered with gold leaf. The mercy seat was hammered gold. And uh, we believe the mercy seat has a destiny. And it's very possible that both of these items are presently being guarded by the Ethiopians at Axum. And they know their destiny is to deliver whatever it is they've got to the Messiah when he rules in Zion. But what's overlooked by many scholars is what the issue isn't the Ark of the Covenant, it's the mercy seat. It may be the throne from which Christ rules. And so those are all topics that you can get into. But the main idea is this whole tabernacle speaks of Jesus Christ, every detail. Every dimension, every material, you can make quite a study there, and I encourage you to do so. Because the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, John tells us. And there, in that, in that phrase in John 1, it, the Word is the title of Jesus Christ. You'll discover every detail of the tabernacle speaks of Jesus Christ in a very eloquent way. He makes a claim to each part. I am the door. Anyone that comes in but by me is a thief and a robber. I am the light of the world, he claims. I am the bread of life. He, of course, is our intercessor. And, of course, he's our sin-bearer, and he's also our propitiation for our sins. And how appropriate it would be to, if he rules from the very throne that makes his kingdom possible. But uh, the coverings, the whole tabernacle is portable building, which was wood covered with gold. Panels that were made wood but covered with gold, so the whole thing had an elegant appearance. Uh, but first thing you did, you, you covered it with embroidered linen, embroidered with cherubim, gold, purple, blue, and scarlet. Gorgeous tapestry. And that's what, if you looked up, because that was covering the building, that's what you see from the inside. You wouldn't see it from the outside, because on top of that, they covered it with goat's hair. Speaking of the sin bearer and the scapegoat and all of that. And that, in turn, then, is covered with ram skins that were dyed red. Speaking of the shed blood. Again, the, the blood emphasis here. From the outside, there's no, it, you, you couldn't tell how attractive it was. It isn't until you get inside that you realize the elegance and the, the beauty of it. And then all this is then covered with porpoise skins or badger skins, depending on your translation. So it had no form nor comeliness that you would desire it. And yet, if you enter, you discover what it's really all about. So uh, there it is. And there's an outer area, the inner court, and the holy place. And many people make the no note that the outer areas corresponds to the body, the inner court, the soul, and the inner part, the spirit. The body, soul, and spirit is a trinity of man, if you will. When you get to um, the monarchy, God is going to add some things to this to make the temple. And it's going to be very instructive to see what he adds. We'll deal with that when we get there. The breastplate of the high priest is also dealt with in Exodus, the 12 stones for the 12 tribes. Each of the names of the 12 tribes is a three-letter root, or a Hebrew root that's embroidered on each of the stones. Some people suspect that it was the glimmer of the light from the menorah on those that gave the high priest's instructions, but that's speculation. Then we get to the book of Leviticus. We'll spend a lot of time there, but it's a book that should be studied rather than just read. It talks about the requirements for fellowship, the holiness, the precepts of his law, his standards of conduct. It also deals with the penalties that are attached to the violations thereof. 
And uh, the ground for this fellowship then is sacrifice. And this, of course, all the sacrifices, all these minute technical things, all point to Jesus Christ. We have a detailed commentary on that for those that want to get into that. But you'll discover every detail is anticipatory of the ultimate sacrifice. Not sacrifice of bulls and goats, but of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything points to that. And that, of course, leads to the walk of fellowship, which is one of separation, which was the preparation for the coming Messiah. So the offerings are in two groups. There are voluntary offerings, sometimes called sweet savor. Those are to God. A burnt offering, meal offering, and peace offering being three categories. There's also a group of offerings that are not voluntary. They're compulsory, not sweet savor. And that's for us, for our benefit. A sin offering, a trespass offering. And all the different offerings are in one of those five categories if you study the book of Leviticus. But there's something else about Leviticus I want to touch on as we get into this here, and that is the um, appointed times in, Hebrews, in Leviticus 23. Rabbi Samson Hirsch said many years ago, the Jews' catechism is this calendar. You know, most denominations have a catechism, a statement of belief. The Jews' catechism is their calendar. If you, the more you study their calendar, the more you understand their whole uh, situation. It's a heptatic calendar. It's a sevenfold uh, type thing. There's a week of days. We all are familiar with that. We all have weeks of days, seventh day being Shabbat. They also have a week of weeks, and, uh, which leads to Shav the Feast of Shavuot. They also have a week of months, the religious year, from Nisan to Tishri, Tishri being the seventh month of the religious year. They have a week of years, what's called the sabbatical year. Six years you can plow the ground, the seventh you have to let it rest, the Sabbath for the land as well. And if you take seven of those and add one, you have the Jubilee year. Very interesting thing. All the land in those days reverted to its owners. You didn't sell land in Israel. You really indulged in what you and I would call the lease. Because in the Jubilee year, it would return to its original tribal uh, inheritance and so forth. In the Jubilee year, all the slaves would go free. If you'd indentured yourself to servitude, you could look to the Jubilee years at, uh, a year that it, all bets are off. It's sort of like a bankruptcy today. All debts are forgiven in the, in the Jubilee year. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.